world, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. My name is James Bagley. And I'm Lucy Chaw. And this is the World We Got This podcast from King's College London. So it's a new year and we have a brand new exciting episode of the podcast. Our first guest of 2021 is Professor Anand Menon. Anand is, is Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. And we discuss Brexit, how we got here, what happens next, and also some of the other challenges the UK faces. We want to wish everyone listening a very happy new year. Um, we know it's not been the usual Christmas uh, or festive period, but we also know that the days are getting a little bit brighter and a little lighter, and it will be spring before you know it. We have listeners from around the world, and it's been fantastic to get your feedback and some of your comments. Please do rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen. And we'd also love to hear your tips for getting through lockdown. They will be really helpful to other listeners. I think they'll probably be helpful to me. I'd like to know how everyone's getting through lockdown. Lucy, I know you've taken to doing a walking routine that's helped. Yes, I have. I think uh, I've realized that a little bit of daily movement is essential during lockdown. And I've really taken to walking once, maybe twice a day. I've become really close with my yoga app. um, And I think that's my top tip to getting through lockdown is just to break up your day with um, some regular movement uh, every now and then. How about you? Yeah, I've been I've kind of got into audiobooks. I had a bit of a wobble over the Christmas <laughs> as I realized I wasn't going home to see my parents and my family. But I uh, downloaded Barack Obama's memoir and he does have quite a reassuring voice. I'm not sure it was the it, it sort of broke new ground in finding out about the, the White House uh, or that period he was in the White House. But it was really reassuring. And he's a fantastic writer. But um, I do recommend a good audio book uh, if you if you need something to switch off. And I guess, you know, this we, we this podcast is all talking about um, challenges. And we, of course, talk about political, economic, uh, social uh, challenges. However, I think hopefully not only can the podcast be a time when you can switch off, but also there are lessons perhaps to be learned uh, from some of these really big challenges uh, for our daily lives. And I guess that brings me to today's discussion with Anand. What I think is really amazing and brilliant about the UK and Changing Europe's work is that they've taken what is a very complex issue, that is Brexit, one that's particularly contentious and that really kind of raises temperatures. And they've managed to kind of break it down into digestible pieces. And they've tried to tell a story that we can understand and that hopefully we can learn from. I guess when we're kind of tackling things, it's that kind of quiet sort of contemplation of the different elements of an issue and the clarity that that brings, I think, is really useful. And it's certainly been useful in this Brexit debate, and I think it will continue to be. And it might be something that we can all learn from. But what do you think, Lucy? Yeah, I agree with you. To echo what you said, I enjoy how Anand makes things so much more accessible just by speaking about politics in, in plain language. So I hope that this episode helps our listeners to get a bit of an understanding as to what we face now as we move forward over the next few months and years. Yeah, I should say that the UK and Changing Europe has a new report out which addresses some of those issues that we'll face in the coming weeks and years. 
Uh, we discuss it in the podcast, uh, but it is available and we've put a link in the show notes. It's called Brexit and Beyond, and I urge you to go read it between audiobooks and walks. So this is Brexit and Beyond, plus a little bit of Billy Bremner with Professor Anand Menon. Today's guest is Professor Anand Menon. Anand is Director of the UK in a Changing Europe and Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London. He has written widely on many aspects of EU politics and policy and on UK-EU relations and is a frequent contributor to the media on matters relating to British relations with the EU. From Question Time to Great Lives, Anand has been the voice of calm in what has felt for some a traumatic and painful Brexit debate. He is in many ways the Brexit explainer in chief. Professor Anand Menon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. You almost made me sound like I should be unemployed now. <laughs> yeah, you're all done. Uh, as, as we'll come on to discuss, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's much more to do, thankfully, or, or, or depends how you, how you approach it. First of all, we're in lockdown free, the prequel no one asked for. <laughs> how, how are you doing? How are you holding up? I'm all right. I mean, you know, I'm, I have quite a nice lockdown uh, in the sense we've got a nice house, we've got a garden. I don't have young kids, which I think is the key variable. So I'm not, I'm not homeschooling. I mean, we've got two people in this house at the moment who are primary school teachers. So there's a lot of primary school teaching going on in this house, but not of our own kids. In fact, by one of our kids. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's certainly I, any colleagues with children. And I, I kind of don't know how they're kind of fully doing anything other uh, than, <laughs> than that. Absolutely. It's, it's, it seems like. And we did it. We had a chat before the podcast, which is which is normal. And uh, I think we both agreed that sport and, and the return of 90 minutes of freedom uh, has been a kind of a way to escape it all. But it is. It's worth stressing that, you know, this is we are going through an enormous natural experiment with lockdown. And it is striking just what a difference having live sport back makes from the first lockdown. It really is. No, absolutely. It, it, it does feel like just escapism is more so than ever. It kind of feels yeah. like that, I feel like. And if you're like um, me and you stay up all night to watch the cricket from Australia, then it just does wonders for your routine as well. <laughs> yeah, sure. So as you know, the podcast is all about understanding and kind of solving challenges, be they local or global. And I guess none are bigger than Brexit both in terms of kind of complexity, but also in terms of kind of the emotions that the challenge raises. But I kind of, I kind of want to start, I mean, in, in preparation for this podcast, I was kind of going back and listening to some of the things that you've spoken on, some of the things you've appeared on. And I, the first one I wanted to talk about was actually nothing to do with Brexit. You'll be happy to hear, or maybe you're not happy to hear, <laughs> which was your appearance on Great Lives with Matthew Paris, in which you talk about and I'm going to, again going to talk about sport for all those listeners that want to tune out for this bit uh, or tune in. And you you nominated Billy Bremner, uh, the great player of that lead side of the early 1970s. But what kind of interested me about your discussion, both you and uh, and the expert guest Rob Bagshi spoke about uh, at times the the challenge of being a Leeds fan because great love of team, great love of the football, but also there were kinds of the politics of the the terraces and. And most notably, the racism in football at that point. Leeds wasn't uh, any different to many places where, where you'd hear racist chanting and abuse on, on the terraces. And I, kind of, I guess kind of hearing you talk about that period and, and trying to pass various different elements, it did actually remind me of how you talk about and approach Brexit, which is to tell the story as it is in all its kind of complexity yeah. and, and kind of pass some of the 
some of the, the bits that are kind of emotive, but also to kind of tell that story. So I guess I wanted to start by asking, has that been something you've always found interesting, telling stories, telling the full picture? And, and is that something that's kind of developed over time as you become an academic or was it something you're always interested in? I've always enjoyed talking. I think it's probably fair to say I've always enjoyed the sound of my own voice. I think everyone I know would uh, concur with that. And I quite like explaining. And I've always preferred talking about my academic work to non-academics than talking about my academic work to academics. And I think that's, I've been very, very lucky because the UK in a changing Europe came along and has been, has fitted me like, you know, it's a hand in a glove. I couldn't have invented something that was more me had I set out with a blank piece of paper to do so. So in that sense, yeah, I, I like trying to break down things I'm thinking about in a way that anyone can understand and we can have a normal conversation about. I mean, I'd say that the obvious difference between the Great Lives thing and anything to do with Brexit is at the heart of the Great Lives episode was an opinion and a bias, which is that I'm a Leeds fan and it's, it's irrational and it's something I believe, but I don't expect you to believe. And of course, one of the things about Brexit that on occasion has been frustrating is we're not allowed to reveal our opinions or our biases. Uh, our funders say you have to be absolutely impartial in this debate. So no one is meant to know what I think. I'm just meant to say, OK, what the research suggests is A, B or C. Yeah, and it does It does feel like you've succeeded in that. I mean, I can say that. I mean, you, you can be, uh, uh, I guess you don't have to say that yourself, but it it is striking that when you talk to people, it's no, I don't think anyone could, could claim to know what your, your kind of personal view on Brexit is. And, and, and I suppose that, do, do you feel that's been achieved through, through that explanation and, and, and staying kind of sticking to actually telling the story as opposed to kind of proposing the next stage or proposing the next uh, act? I think that's part, that's part of it, certainly, is as an organisation, we're not like think tanks that set out to sell a line. So if you're a think tank that thinks the government should do X, there's no should about us. That's to say, we're simply saying, if X, then Y, uh, if Y, then Z, but it's up to you to make up your own decision. We're not going to express a preference. It's also actually surprisingly quite a lot to do with language. When we do events with people, sometimes you notice, even when there are other academics who aren't part of our organisation and don't have this impartiality requirement on them, that they'll use words like should, yeah, or they'll, they'll end with happily or unfortunately and, and betray, you know, their own personal preference. Now, one of the things I've found, and one of the most interesting lessons I've learned, I think, over the last five years is if people don't think you're trying to sell them something, they're more willing to listen to you. Because, you know, especially during the referendum and immediately afterwards, people got so fed up of people coming in and saying, well, it's obviously A, B and C. And then you knew the arguments because they were a remainer or they were a leaver and you knew what they're going to say. With us, there's a sense that people aren't really sure what we're going to say because we're not selling them one of those lines. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the, the, the second the second uh, sort of clip or moment that I was that I found interesting was your recent appearance on Question Time, which kind of went viral. I mean, it was, certainly went viral on my Twitter. A lot of people were sharing it from both sides, which I thought was interesting. Which I think it was when you were talking um, about some of the trade offs, uh, which is mm. I guess a lot of what you're, you're having to do with Brexit and was talking about some of the things that happen if people's arguments kind of come true, which, and, and, and I guess my question was about the fact that it's felt like at times, it's not so much that people are unwilling to understand the other opinion, it's that they're unwilling to actually understand the consequences of their own argument mm -hmm. at times with Brexit. Do you, do you think that is slightly unique to Brexit, that unwillingness to actually 
kind of properly think through what your argument means for the consequences directly of Brexit, but also wider politics? I think it is indicative of very polarised and particularly of identity politics, that people tend to view the world through a certain lens, and that shapes how they interpret not only their vision of the future, but also their views of what's happening now. So, for instance, one of the interesting bits of research that one of our team did a couple of years ago was to ask people what they thought about the state of the UK economy. And it split very neatly into leavers who thought the economy was doing very well and remainers who thought the economy wasn't doing very well at all. So these lenses shape how people view things. And the real trick for us, I think, is to be able to find a way to make both sides listen to you. And that's quite hard. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to do. But I do, I mean, I genuinely do think that both sides have been less than honest in this debate. I mean, it is a fact that actually outside the European Union, we have a scope to do stuff better than we were able to do inside the European Union. I mean, who can make a bigger mess of agriculture than the EU did with the common agricultural policy? If we can't improve on those agricultural policies, then God help us. So there are opportunities that come with autonomy. But the flip side is I get very irritated with leavers who say, if we leave, there won't be an economic price to pay. Of course, there's going to be an economic price to pay. If you make trade with your biggest trading partner more difficult and more expensive, it will rebound on your economy in the short to medium term. That's just a trade-off. And if people were willing to debate these things sort of more honestly, I think, you know, we would, it would be more fulfilling. I understand why people don't do that during a referendum campaign, okay, because the desire to win takes over, doesn't it? Uh, and that's true of all political campaigns, I think, is that ultimately you're so driven to win that you will to be economical with the truth, let's put it that way. But subsequently, I've been slightly appalled by the standard of the debate and the lengths to which people would go to sort of make their case, even if they're obviously saying stuff that doesn't make sense. And as you say, during an election campaign, you, you wouldn't expect political parties or politicians to kind of unpack every argument they make and the consequences of it. But it can feel like at times that this has been one long campaign as opposed to a discussion about the future. I would like there to be a little bit more. I mean, it would be good if people were more. It would be good if there's a little more shame about. I mean, yeah. the <laughs> shamelessness of politics at the moment is, is something I find quite annoying and quite sad really that people will get away with the most remarkable statements and it won't come back to home i mean the british prime minister saying that the deal he's just signed means there will be no new non-tariff barriers is just simply wrong and you know i i am naive enough to think it would be nice if he stood up and said actually i got that wrong i misspoke i'm sorry but of course yeah those days if they ever existed are long gone yeah. And as you said, I think I think you mentioned in, in that question time appearance that if it if there weren't consequences from Brexit or disruption, it kind of wouldn't be worth doing. I mean, mm. and, and that that's a in, in a sense, that's a fine thing for Brexiteers to say, for example, because they're arguing that it's a big kind of momentous yeah. decision. And so that it, but the unwillingness to even accept that side of points to maybe a, a campaign mentality on, on all sides. Uh, that, that, yeah, sort of absolutely. Um, it kind of reminds me, actually, sort of thinking back, we, there was a. If you, uh, Tony Blair came to launch something at King's and he was talking on Brexit. This was before 2019 election. And what I thought was so striking about it was that here was this man who had this kind of famed political nous and kind of antennae for, and yet his argument really, he wasn't kind of thinking through the consequences of his argument on things like freedom of movement or on all these things, which I just thought, again, for someone that was actually of all, you know, you can call him many things, but he, he tended to think through the political consequences of, of decision making. Well, it's one of the great interesting things about politics, isn't it? How former politicians mm. 
are able to be honest in a way that they weren't when in office. So, you know, with Tony Blair and the whole freedom of movement thing, you can think back to the early 2000s when Labour Home Secretaries were complicit in sort of mingling the notions of asylum and refugee and immigrants. I, you know, I remember that from the early 2000s. Or, you know, Gordon Brown standing up and making passionate pro-EU speeches during the referendum. This is the same Gordon Brown who refused to turn up to the signing of the Lisbon Treaty because it would be embarrassing to be seen to be doing it. So they actually organised a separate signing ceremony just for him so he could go and do it in private. It's far, far easier when you're out of office to be honest about these things than it is when you're in office. And I mean, and this isn't necessarily a criticism of them. I mean, being in political office imposes enormous constraints and you've got to, you've got to work with the tide and try and get as much as you can done, given the constraints that there are upon you. So you've got a new report out. I should, I mm-hmm. should plug at all times. And uh, people will be happy to hear there is much more to discuss, <laughs> even though we've, we've got a deal in whatever form it, uh, uh, it appears um, there, are, there are issues beyond Brexit or linked to Brexit. And, you know, sometimes people say Brexit is not an event, it's a process. And in the report, you discuss many challenges that the UK faces. There's some terrific uh, writing there from lots of experts. Do you think these challenges broadly are things that existed before Brexit and, and are things that kind of face many other kind of Western democracies? Or do you think they far form sort of part of a continuation of the Brexit process or at least kind of consequences of the Brexit process? There are several aspects to that, okay? I think Brexit itself was in part a response to issues that are there across the developed and indeed parts of the developing world, which is a frustration with the economic settlement, a lack of trust in mainstream politics, a sense that that politics wasn't delivering for whole swathes of society. That was common across a whole load of countries. So in that sense, Brexit can be studied comparatively. You can look at the Brexit coalition and the Trump coalition. You could even look at the Brexit coalition and the Modi coalition, actually, interestingly enough, in some ways. So yes, there are common features. Brexit itself, the act of having left the European Union, creates some problems that are specific to us and some issues that are specific to us which range from the opportunities of Brexit to redefine certain policies that were previously defined for us by the European Union, whether that's immigration or agriculture or fisheries or regional policy, all those sorts of things. It's also, of course, had second order impacts on things like the devolution settlement, public opinion in the, in the different nations of the United Kingdom. In, in, this, in the introduction to this report, I liken Brexit to chucking a big stone into a very still pond. And now what's happening is we're dealing with the ripples. And those ripples are going to, I was going to say reverberate. I'm not sure ripples reverberate. The ripples are going to ripple for a long, long time to come because this is a fundamental change to our sort of constitutional model, if you like, that has widespread implications. It's been a process that has reshaped the social bases of our politics, which is going to have widespread implications. And of course, it's a process that's going to have a fundamental impact on our economy. And those three, just off the top of my head, are big long-term issues. So in a sense, this report was, I suppose the aims of it were twofold. Firstly, to try and sketch out what the problems facing the country are and are going to be looking forward. But secondly, to make the case that actually, if the point of the UK in a changing Europe was to bring the knowledge generated by social science to bear on the Brexit process, there is every bit as much, if not more, need for that knowledge to be present in dealing with the longer-term implications of that process. And as you say, I mean, it discusses a whole range of topics, really fascinating stuff. It's out tomorrow. Uh, We're recording this a week ahead, but it is out tomorrow as we release this podcast. 
Um, the stuff on the union, uh, which mm-hmm. will clearly be a big topic for 2022, depending on what happens with the elections. I found the stuff on UK housing policy, which I find personally endlessly fascinating. I think that makes me both a loser and a millennial. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what what do you, what are the sort of challenges in there that that, that stand out for you? That perhaps I guess are you know talking about unique to the UK and kind of pose particular problems for us. Well, the devolution issue is unique to the UK because we have a uniquely messy devolution settlement, by which I mean not just in terms of the Scots, the Welsh and Northern Ireland, where we have a devolution settlement that's been profoundly disturbed by Brexit, because what made devolution work was that it was contained within the umbrella of European integration. So you could have an island of Ireland without an internal border, even though there were two separate countries because of the single market and the customs union. You could have devolved powers over agriculture and some parts of regulation because, again, the single market meant that everything was accepted. You know, you had mutual recognition of stuff flowing between different regulatory systems and things like that. That all changes now. So the the UK specific issues, I think, centre around the constitutional issues. In England as well, of course, we've got a patchwork of devolution. And one of the things that the combination of Brexit and COVID has really sparked off is a debate about whether, for instance, other parts of the country should have an Andy Byrne, who can stand up for their region in the face of what they might perceive as being, you know, willful central government blindness to the problems inherent in that region. You know, the piece by Tony Travers of the LSE points out the fact that we might need to sort of think about having those kinds of arrangements for different parts of the country that don't yet have them. And then we need to start thinking about whether or not central government should actually give meaningful powers to these local figures so that local issues can be tackled locally using local money. Then, of course, I mean, for me, the the really big challenge, and it's not a UK-specific challenge, but it's UK-specific in the context of Brexit and COVID, I suppose, is the government's stated ambition to level up because there is some evidence, it's not overwhelming, there is some evidence that Brexit will impact most on the poorest parts of the United Kingdom. We'll have to wait and see because the evidence is mixed, because at least manufacturing has some sort of deal to work with with the EU, and that might help those regions. But there's also evidence that COVID will impact most severely on those regions. So levelling up might well have become more difficult because of Brexit and COVID. And so that's a real challenge for central government. And that will be something, I mean, again, as I said, Inequality is not a problem specific to the United Kingdom. I think we have we have the largest levels of regional inequality amongst all developed European economies. So it's more of a problem for us and will be harder for us to deal with. So one of the things that you mentioned there was was levelling up, uh, which is part of obviously the, the current government's agenda. And I think Jonathan Porters has mentioned before this kind of need to see levelling up beyond infrastructure. And that's kind of social policy and spending. And I guess I wonder whether the debate has properly moved on from kind of the grand visions to the kind of smaller kind of policy levers of government and whether we're kind of at that stage yet. And the report kind of because it gets into some of those kind of more traditional levers of government and whether we're actually in that place in terms of our politics and if, if the politics kind of needs to catch up with where we're at in terms of these challenges. Well, I mean, our politics has shifted dramatically in the wake of the referendum of 2016. I mean, we now have a a situation where conservative governments are talking about inequality and levelling up, which prior to the referendum would have been pretty unthinkable. The notion that had they won the referendum, that David Cameron and George Osborne would have gone on a sort of on a crusade to reduce 
inequality strikes me as frankly quite laughable. So, I mean, I think our politics has moved. Where our politics ultimately will settle is a very, very good question, because, of course, the Conservative Party is divided, as far as I can see, between, you know, if you take the Red Wall MPs, they are very, very keen for the government to deliver on their promises about levelling up. If you take traditional Shire Tories, they're more concerned about fiscal rectitude and not raising taxes on their constituents. So how that plays out in Parliament is going to be a crucial part of the next five to ten years. And of course, one of the curious things is, in a way, since the referendum of 2016, we've, ne- we've not really been governed. We've not really had a government that says, OK, this is my domestic agenda. This is how I'm pushing it through. In the case of Theresa May, because everything got logjammed by Brexit and by having a minority government, so she couldn't get anything through. In the case of Boris Johnson, because immediately after he wins that remarkable electoral success of December last year, gets his majority, but is immediately neck deep in COVID, metaphorically speaking. So... He's not had the chance to govern us yet. And so we genuinely don't know coming out of this how this government is going to tackle the problem of governing this country and whether or not they are really committed to delivering on this kind of rhetoric. You know, within his government, you have people like Liz Truss and Dominic Raab who've put their names to policy documents that talk about deregulation, shrinking the state, a very traditional Tory agenda, if you like. But that is incompatible with what the Prime Minister is talking about when he says levelling up, more investment. So it'll be interesting to see where we go. But at the moment, it's very, very hard to know for certain. And I guess on that, you, you mentioned some of those 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 politicians, and I guess they could be called the kind of free trade Britain mm-hmm. part of the Brexit coalition. And in some ways, COVID has meant that that, I think a lot of people predicted that there would once Brexit was delivered in whatever form, that 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 debate between actually what Brexit means uh, in terms of whether it's restrictions on freedom of movement or restrictions on immigration versus kind of the free traders and that kind of thing would would become centre stage. Do do you think that that might be something that that post-COVID becomes more of a debate and actually when Brexiteers and in the country and in Parliament are confronted by some of those decisions? Well, I think free movement was always going to be part of post-Brexit Britain, ending free movement, because it was so central to the referendum. It was so central to the agenda of the prime minister who took over straight after the referendum, because, of course, if there's one thing that, that Theresa May was big on, it was cutting back on immigration. So we now have a new immigration policy. Free movement has been scrapped. Uh, Europeans face the same hurdles to come here as non-Europeans if they're coming here to work or to study or whatever. They need to apply for visas. So that's already changed. There's been an interesting shift in public opinion on immigration post-referendum. Public opinion has become, uh, you know, quite strikingly more liberal when it comes to immigration than it was pre-2016. On the rest, I mean, I'm reluctant to call it a sort of free trade agenda because, it's a pretty silly, it's a pretty odd free trade agenda that begins its work by making trade with your biggest trading partner more difficult. That's not really free trade. But the sort of global Britain agenda, which is we should be doing more with the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's worth saying very, very clearly and unambiguously that however many trade deals we sign with the rest of the world, it's not going to compensate for the loss of trade with the European Union because we trade so much more with the European Union than we do with countries in the Commonwealth, say. But there is a debate about what global Britain should mean beyond trade. And I think that debate will continue. But I think it's within this country that it's really interesting because, of course, for some Brexiters, leaving the European Union was an end in itself and was the sort of culmination of a lifetime of lobbying for this. If you think of people like Bill Cash, who spent the vast majority of their parliamentary careers fighting to get us out of the European Union. But for others, Brexit wasn't an end in itself. It was a means to an end. 
That is to say, Brexit was a way to spark a change in the way we were governed, which meant that you could reform the civil service, you could reform the way policies were uh, formulated, you could you could reform the way you dealt with regional inequality. So for some, actually, the proof of the Brexit pudding isn't in leaving the European Union. It is in what we do now to build on the freedoms that we've gained by leaving the European Union. And here that tension really raises its head because traditionally conservative Eurosceptics have chafed at EU membership because they want to deregulate. They want to cut back the state. They want to sort of cut enterprise free. They want to create the sort of uber Thatcherite Britain. But of course, that that's only half the Conservative Party now because the other half of the Conservative Party actually would like quite a big state because their constituents in some of those famous red wall seats are on benefits and might need unemployment support or, or whatever. So that that is a debate that will happen within the governing party and it's going to be fascinating to watch it. So we're going to be a bit cheeky now after you've written this extensive report about all the challenges we face and um, and ask kind of all the things you think there are kind of, I guess it's that Donald Rumsfeld quote, you know, known knowns, uh, known unknowns, I'm thinking, but I, I actually watched, I think it was, was it um, Vice in, in with Christian Bale in yeah. lockdown, one of the many films that I've, that I've watched. People said he was humanised. I, I don't I don't see that. How <laughs> he did anything but humanise him. But anyway, um, I highly recommend to anyone uh, if they're needing a new film to watch. Do you think, is there anything that you think isn't on the agenda at the moment? It might be in the report, but it's not in the daily news. Uh, some kind of big issue, because we've seen with COVID, you know, out of the blue, these kind of, I mean, there's yep. nothing bigger <laughs> in terms of surprises to politicians and to the country. But do you think there are other things or issues that really could come to shape the politics of the UK in ways that Brexit has uh, for the kind of last five, ten years? Well, there are, I think, probably two known unknowns, which, you know, we, we know they're going to happen. But we don't know what they're, well, three probably. I mean, one known unknown is the fact that Brexit is going to hang about, but we don't know in what form. We don't know whether the Brexit division in Britain will persist, uh, whether, you know, it has reshaped the basis of support for parties. So the Conservatives now came to power on the back of a Leave coalition that is cross-class, which is not how our politics is meant to work. Will that happen? Will that keep going? Whether or not that keeps going, I think, will hinge on the second known unknown, which is the post-COVID economic crisis. Because, of course, I'm amazed how little people are talking about this now, because we know it's going to happen. When we emerge from the public health crisis, when the vaccine is being rolled out, when the uh, pandemic is is under greater control, we are going to face an enormous economic crisis with very, very high levels of unemployment. I think that will shape our politics for the lifetime of this parliament at a minimum, because even if we have the expected fast recovery, it might not necessarily be V-shaped. Economists, interestingly, now are talking about a K-shaped recovery where the better off recover very, very fast. In fact, the better off don't recover because the better off have got nothing to recover from because, you know, the middle class are in their nice houses, getting their salaries and saving money. Whereas people who are not not able to work and therefore not getting paid are having a very, very different experience of lockdown. People are going to lose their jobs. And how we recover from that, I think, is going to be the defining feature of this problem. And that might lead to politics rearranging itself around class or economic lines. We don't know, but it is one of the big issues, I think, that we will see over the next few years, whether or not that cross-class leave coalition splinters under the weight of the economic crisis post-COVID is one of the big questions that the government is going to have to wrestle with. 
And of course, the third thing is Scotland. You know, at some point next year, I don't know whether it's going to be May because there's talk of moving the election, there's going to be election. And at the moment, it looks like the SNP are going to get a majority in a parliament whose electoral rules were, de- were, were designed specifically to avoid any party getting a majority. But it looks like they're going to get a majority, though, of course, at the same time, you have this Alex Salmon row bubbling over within the SNP. So we'll see whether that has any impact. If they get a majority on the back of a programme to seek another referendum, then we have a constitutional issue staring us in the face because Boris Johnson will say no. And then there will be a standoff, which I imagine will end up in the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court rules that the UK government had every right to say no, then we just have to wait and see what the SNP decide to do with what they will claim is a mandate, which Boris Johnson claims isn't a mandate. Yeah, it feels like that's that that issue lays waiting for us the the union and everything to do with it. It's it's yeah. fascinating to, to 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 understand that. And there is a piece in the, the report, as I say, that people can devour um, amongst their other lockdown reading. So um, I guess I guess coming back to the politics of explanation or compromise, um, whatever you call it, the paper in many ways lays out loads of really tough challenges and. Perhaps they're not as emotive as Brexit, but they do require both understanding and compromise, perhaps not just in Parliament, but amongst maybe citizens. You can disagree with me on that. Maybe some of them can be can be solved without that. But do you think the kinds of divides that we've seen in the Brexit process will continue? And do you think they pose a kind of threat to overcoming the challenges outlined in the report? Yes, and possibly not, I think will be my answer. I think they will persist, and they'll persist simply because all the survey evidence we have points to the fact that the Brexit division is real and it's deep. That is to say that people are more committed now in general to their Brexit identity than they are to a political party identity. So it's very, very hard to shift away from that. That being said, many of the big issues we face, how do we fund social care? are not issues of Brexit identity, they're issues of economics. So the debate might take place on a different set of issues, if you like, which might mean that Brexit doesn't become the defining divide of our time, because there's, because as I said, because the, the economic problems of COVID are going to be sort of staring us in the face for a while to come, that might trigger a different division, the more traditional class division, if you like, between rich and poor, that, that sort of mitigates the Brexit factor for a while. So as I said, it is very, very hard to know what those Brexit tribes will look like by the time we go to the polls for another general election in presumably 2024. Well, on that positive note, (laughs) I want to say a big thank you to Professor Anand Menon. Um, I want to say wish leads all the best from a Nottingham Forest fan. We've talked about... It can't um, get any worse than last weekend or the weekend before. uh, You know, look, you're in the Premier League. Yes, that's true. Football. You, you know, as a, as a team that's currently 19th in the championship, <laughs> I, I enjoy it, I tell you. Enjoy oh, God, it. I am enjoying it. I am enjoying it. I, I mean, I sort of religiously watch Match of the Day just because I know we're on it. <laughs> it's it, yeah. Whether you're winning or losing, you're playing good football. Yeah, so absolutely. Congratulations. All right. Well, take care. Thanks so much. All the very best. Thank you. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel Waugh.